Welcome to this podcast from the May 12, 2009 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the second session relating to financial challenges in intercollegiate athletics and new strategies for fiscal responsibility in the changing landscape of higher education and intercollegiate athletics. Knight Commission Co-Chairman William Kerwin, Chancellor of the University System of Maryland, provides the introduction for this second session. The podcast runs approximately one hour and 15 minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org. We want to get uh, th this session started, and while we are waiting for uh, some of our colleagues to get back from the break, I, uh, we do have a large number of uh, guests in the room today, and uh, I, d I just wanted to remind everyone uh, what we're about here. Uh, with, with the, the commission. Um, uh, 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 we are in the process of conducting a, a year-long review of the uh, financial state of intercollegiate athletics, uh, its, its sustainability under its current model, and what, what modifications might be made to, um, to uh, bring uh, the finances under uh, greater control. Um, and it's very appropriate that the commission undertake this uh, study because going back even to 1991, uh, fiscal integrity has been part of the one plus three model, one of the three pr pillars of, um, uh, that the, found, uh, that the uh, Knight Foundation has embraced uh, now for some uh, more than 20, 25 years. Um, in addition to the public session and the experts we're hearing from, uh, you should know that there is a, um, a survey underway of all presidents of Division I-A institutions uh, trying to get their assessment of the state of, of intercollegiate athletics. And um, there, the results of this survey will be made available uh, by the uh, sometime at the end of the summer or early, or early uh, September. Uh, a point that I want to make is that the culmination of all this effort, the input we get from these experts and from this survey, uh, will lead to a report from the Knight uh, Commission uh, that will be issued uh, sometime in the first quarter of uh, 20, 2010, uh, providing our best thinking on the financial uh, health of intercollegiate athletics and any prescriptions that we want to put forth. I think. Um, we, we all understand um, that uh, there are things at work here that, that, that have to be addressed. I mean, we just heard in a, one of the previous se sessions that the uh, growth rate in expenditure on intercollegiate athletics is at least double, maybe m more than that, of the growth rate of expenditures for the, general, for the university as a whole. That's obviously not sustainable. Uh, the average deficit for a uh, intercollegiate um, uh, football uh, subdivision uh, school is now $9 million, $9 million deficit on average for the 119 uh, football uh, subdivision schools, and that's a 25% increase uh, over, the last, uh, over what it was uh, four or five years ago. So the, the deficit is rising. The expenditure rates are, 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 are much greater than for the institution as a whole, 
And, uh, you know, I think those two facts alone suggest that uh, something has to, has, to, uh, has to change. So in, in continuing with our uh, efforts to hear from people, very knowledgeable people, we have a distinguished panel uh, with us uh, th th this morning. Let me introduce them and uh, very briefly, um, I think they're mo known to most of you, uh, and then they'll just uh, speak uh, in that order. Uh, the first is uh, Andy Geiger, who's had a uh, long and very distinguished career uh, as an athletic director serving Brown University, University of Pennsylvania, Stanford, the University of Maryland, and The Ohio State University. I have to insert a point of personal privilege to say it was my honor to work with uh, and, and privilege to work with Andy at, in two of those uh, 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 two of those positions at uh, when he was at the University of Maryland and at Ohio State. Uh, Andy retired uh, from Ohio State uh, in 2005. He continues to serve as a, uh, as a consultant and uh, brings special expertise here because he was involved, very, very much involved in an earlier effort by the NCAA to uh, address the issue of reducing uh, costs. Uh, next to Andy is John Colombo, who is the Albert E. Jenner Professor of, uh, uh, at the University of Illinois College of Law. Uh, where he also got his uh, law degree, uh, uh, summa cum laude. Uh, he is an expert in, in, in tax law and uh, particularly in the area of tax exemption uh, theory. He has a really, I think, very significant and, and, and a relevant ar article given our overall topic that is about to come out in the Illinois Law Review. Uh, it, maybe it's already out, but it's uh, it's about to uh, I think about to come out. The NCAA and the title is the NCAA tax exemption and college athletics. Uh, because of his expertise, he's been uh, invited several times to testify before uh, Congress on, on on these matters. And then we have uh, next to John uh, Bob Zemsky, who's a longtime friend, uh, currently serves as chair of the Learning Alliance for Higher Education. Um, and uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the founding director of the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Research on Higher Education, uh, widely recognized as uh, one of uh, America's leading experts on, on, on ch change uh, at, at, at universities. He was, uh, um, speaking of change, Change Magazine in 1998 uh, named him as, as one of higher education's top 40 leaders. So um, he brings a, a, a very broad and a deep um, perspective to our conversations today. So Andy, we'll start with you. And uh, when the three of you finish, I'm sure we'll have questions. Thank you, Brett. I appreciate those uh, kind comments you made. It's, it's good to be with you uh, again and with many other old friends uh, around the table and in the room. Uh, I have listened carefully to the previous discussion and once again have experienced the thrill of retirement. Uh, um, after 45 years in intercollegiate athletics, uh, Eleanor and I moved to Port Angeles, Washington, which is way out on the corner in the Olympic Peninsula, which allowed us to get as far away from intercollegiate athletics as possible and still be in the United States. <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, it, it's kind of a, a bittersweet thing to be back with you because these issues are so serious and so difficult and uh, as has been pointed out, we've been there before. Uh, I've um, focused several of my remarks on the special committee on cost reduction that 
uh, made its report in 1990 and was the cornerstone of what was called at that time the Reform Convention of the NCIA. And there were serious efforts to uh, attack the, the problem of cost uh, in three general areas, recruiting, competitive policies, and financial aid. And in fact, several of these initiatives passed. The guiding principles for this effort were four core principles, provide institutions the means by which to operate affordable sports programs that are broadly based and comprehensive, two, reduce time demands on student athletes and increase involvement in other aspects of college life, reduce pressures on prospective student athletes and coaches during the recruitment process, and further reconcile activities of intercollegiate athletics with member institutions' fundamental values and education missions. Um, recently, I noticed a, a press release on the NCAA website where the Board of Directors have once again called for some action in the area of, uh, of, of cost containment and, if not containment, reduction, and that four principles be fair competition, two, student-athlete uh, well-being, three, integrity of sport, and four, costs. So things in 20 years, uh, approximately 20 years, really haven't changed all that much. In, um, in our efforts to uh, reduce costs, we voted to put limitations on coaching staffs in ways that hadn't been done before. Um, and we established, lamentably, a category called restricted earnings coaches, which was struck down uh, by the Supreme Court and cost us all a great deal of money, the antithesis of, um, of cost containment, unfortunately. But the coaching limitations, uh, the numbers actually sans the, the restricted earnings aspect of it. Um, the coaching limitations remain um, nine foot, uh, football coaches and the number of basketball coaches, the numbers uh, across the board in, in every sport. Um, in recruiting, we reduced the number of coaches who could travel at any one time on a sport-by-sport -sport basis, the number of visits to home site, high schools, et cetera, number of campus visits that student, uh, prospective student athletes can make, and we made an attempt to cut out um, sports-specific videos, uh, reduce media guides to something smaller than the Manhattan phone book, um, uh, reduce other printed brochures and recruiting materials that were directly sports-related, and to try to do something about telephone calls. I think that latter part has, has definitely fallen apart in the age of Twitter, because uh, I think trying to regulate that sort of thing is, is, is close to impossible. But these were all efforts to, uh, to pull back collectively, which is the only way this, um, this effort of, of cost reduction can happen. We all have to agree and, and, and figure out a way to do it. Uh, a very controversial aspect of this was the reduction across the board by 10% of financial aid. That's why in some sports you have uh, decimal points for um, the ability to award scholarships in soccer. Men's soccer, I believe, for example, used to be 11. It's now 9.9 .9 because of the 10% of the reduction. But those 10% reductions across the board, there has been some creep back on a sport-by-sport -sport basis. but. In general, they've, they've held. We went from 95 football scholarships to 85 and, um, and other changes like that. Um, we tried to limit the number of contests for each sport and created the categories of traditional and non-traditional seasons. Um, 
the uh, the addition of conference postseason conference championships in every sport has added back uh, competitive opportunities because in our wisdom uh, we count a conference championship activity as, as one game and we know for most teams at least more than half the teams it's more than one game and uh, more than one day of, of, of lost class time um, the the um, uh, the other limitations in contests have uh, have been reversed a little bit in the revenue-producing sports for obvious reasons. We've gone to 12 permissible football games, and for some conferences, they've agreed to have a, a an additional championship game um, towards the end of the season um, on, on top of that. Um, the uh, traditional and non-traditional season aspect has fallen apart a little bit. Uh, with the uh, ability now for individual instruction, the ability for uh, freshmen and uh, pre-freshmen in, in uh, the sport of basketball to come into summer school and, and all of those kinds of things. So athletic activity is, uh, is pretty much uh, ongoing. Also student athletes at a very high level of competition who want to be the very best um, are, are training pretty much most of the time, whether it's in a team situation or individual in the weight room or, or, uh, or, or what have you. But they're under some aspect of, of, of management um, in, in, in all of these kinds of things. Point here being very briefly is that efforts have been made to try to pull back uh, together because pulling back unilaterally uh, seems to be um, uh, impossible. Um, that the pulling back together is the is the only way through this, and I would maintain that that we have to do it again, um, as a as an enterprise, and and that if we work hard at it, uh, we we can do some of these things. I've given some thought as to what is uh, what is driving up costs. Um, you've heard some about this already, but uh, clearly, uh, fifty percent of budgets, most athletics budgets, are are. Uh, personnel, either financial aid for student athletes or salaries for staff, um, coaching staff and, and administrative staff. While coaching salaries have escalated uh, dramatically, I would submit also that non-coaching salaries have escalated dramatically, uh, mostly through uh, increase in personnel uh, for a variety of activities, and I'll, I'll talk about um, this um, um, a little bit. Tuition, uh, room and board rates, as Tim uh, Curley mentioned, are not under the control of, of, of uh, athletics departments, but when universities aggressively raise tuition, which has been happening over uh, the last several years, the athletics department uh, has to account for that one way or the other, either through subsidy uh, or by paying, um, as we did at Ohio State, uh, to pay for them directly. But if uh, if there's a dramatic increase, it's, it's, it's simply part of what you have to deal with. Uh, in our state, in the state of Washington, I think, uh, I'm not sure about Washington State, but I know the University of Washington has been given permission to increase tuition 28% over the next two years. That's 14% uh, maximum per year. And uh, that athletic department is looking at a pretty good um, escalator uh, in terms of uh, having to deal with all of that, and uh, as partly as a consequence of that, they've just uh, uh, dropped men's and women's swimming and diving, regrettably, uh, from uh, from their programs. Um, I would, uh, as a sidebar, as a person that at every institution that I was proud to be part of, um, celebrated broadly based programs. Ohio State has been mentioned 
uh, we were able to uh, deal with our inequity issues in Title IX by adding women's rowing, uh, women's lacrosse, and women's ice hockey to uh, to balance our program, and uh, and I'm proud of that. Uh, I was an oarsman as an undergraduate. I'm forever grateful to Syracuse University for having the sport, and realized that. Um, the best defense we've ever had for intercollegiate athletics has been Title IX, where uh, women are able to enjoy and celebrate participation in athletics and have proven once and for all that there is good value and, and, and some good in college athletics. Uh, athletes from one differ from one sport to the other. Uh, a fencer's not at all like a football player. So having diversity in your program means having a broadly based program and many different kinds of athletes. You can accomplish some of this through the club sports as Tim very well articulated and we enjoyed a very large club sport program at Ohio State and with a brand new recreation center, a burgeoning intramurals and, and, and recreation program as well. Um, benefits, um, re retirement benefits and, and health insurance benefits that all university employees uh, uh, enjoy. Um, have also increased at a, at, at a, at a very high rate. Um, assistant football coaches from 2004 to 2006, um, there was a 23% increase in, in support for assistant football coaches. Um, offensive and defensive coordinators are now getting three and $400,000 salaries and multi-year contracts. Um, as, as uh, it, along with uh, what, what we already have discussed, and that is what's what's happening with the uh, with with the head coaches. To me, the uh, the biggest change in athletics over the past couple decades has been the growth of support systems in athletics. Um, director of operations and assistant director of operations in so many different sports. I know some schools now have a director of operations for lacrosse, for example, where lacrosse is a big and important activity. Um, so much of the administrative work in the quote, good old days, end quote, was done by assistant coaches and head coaches. It's now done by people that are hired to write schedules and make travel arrangements and do all those kinds of things. We have camp directors for summer camps. Uh, which have become so important in the in the recruiting business, um, sport by sport recruiting offices, uh, videography is uh, very important as practices in virtually every sport are now um, videotaped for instant review by team and coach. Um, <clears throat> it seems that um, we have a tremendous growth in the number of personnel and strength and conditioning. Um, some programs have, in football, offensive and defensive quality control people. They never coach on the field. They spend all day long looking at tape and scouting, them, scouting their own team and preparing the team for, for future games. We have people that are, that are euphemistically called directors of community relations on a sport-by-sport -sport basis to, uh, to some degree. Many graduate students that are involved in the program um, and we've had also an increase because of the amount of time that student athletes are spending in practice. Um, sports medicine has become um, very important. In non-sport specific staff, technology, website maintenance, um, uh, the video, videography that I mentioned, uh, scoreboards that have video boards um, means that you have to produce a television show every time you play a home game that's going to be on your own 
local scoreboard. Those folks want to get paid. Um, we, we passed a lot of legislation that required uh, regulation. So uh, as soon as we passed, for example, the telephone uh, calling uh, restrictions, we created something called telephone logs, and we doubled the size of the compliance staff as a, as, as a result. Um, academic support programs have grown. And although reporting relationships for academic support programs have shifted from the athletic department to the provost section, as they well should, the, the, the um, underwriting of those programs is, is, uh, is still done by the athletics department in an indirect, uh, in most cases, in an indirect way. In some schools, support for athletically related uh, needs in the offices of financial aid, the registrar's office, and the office of legal affairs uh, because of all of the uh, work that's required by those areas that's directly athletically related, the athletic department contributes to the underwriting of that. Uh, we've grown our development um, departments and our marketing departments. Our whole outreach effort is bigger than it used to be. Uh, clearly, as we've uh, uh, built new facilities, and we certainly did a lot of that at Ohio State, um, it has cost some money to, uh, to have staff to, uh, to take care of them and, um, and, and to also manage the events that are, um, th that are in their, those, those areas. Um, to, um, uh, we, this has already been mentioned, but clearly there is an arms race. Athletics is a copycat enter enterprise. We don't want to be left behind. Uh, we're success-driven, um, and um, that's why it, it's going to require all of us working together to pull back. I would point out that there are 34 bowl games, 34 bowl games. That's 68 teams. That's a lot of six-and-six six records that are going to wind up going to bowl games. Um, it's tough to sell tickets to some of those games. The, quote, payout, end quote, for uh, the bowl games includes the uh, obligation of the school that's participating in the game to sell tickets to the bowl. If you don't sell those tickets, they're charged against your payout. So by the time you move your team, you're banned. By the time you've paid for all of the preparation on campus and off campus, housing and, and all of those kinds of things, the travel, et cetera, it's tough for there to be net income at the end of, at the end of that activity. I'm not sure. and. Um, I'm going to get a lot of email about this, but I'm not sure we need 34 bowl games. Um, Postseason basketball. Uh, the NIT has survived. Uh, not only is there now the NIT, there are two other invitational tournaments that, that uh, exist outside the um, uh, NCAA tournament itself. 64 teams go to the NCAA tournament. Another 32 go to the NIT. And I don't know how many are involved in uh, in those other tournaments, and the same thing is happening on the women's side, I, I, I might add, uh, those are all, in my view, probably net expense, and certainly expense to the athletic department because you're sustaining the activity both on your campus and in terms of competition. So we, we, seem, uh, we seem not to deal well with wretched excess uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I was uh, struck by a quote from the chair of the NCAA Recruiting and Athletics Personnel Issues Cabinet that uh, there has been a phenomenal growth in non-coaching personnel that have sports-specific duties, and I outlined uh, some of those. And I have just uh, mentioned that we also need 
to examine administrative growth. So with that, I'll rest and answer questions when it's my turn to do so. Thank you, Andy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for inviting me to talk a little bit about tax exemption and college athletics. I've been writing about issues of tax exemption for charitable organizations as a professor at the University of Illinois for 20 years. But, the, uh, but my interest in, in the topic of tax exemption as it applies to the NCAA and college athletics was piqued by um, the letter that was sent by then uh, Representative Bill Thomas as, in his capacity as uh, chair of the House Ways and Means Committee uh, to Miles Brand back in October of 2006 that essentially asked why should the NCAA be tax exempt. That, that letter uh, brought out the talking heads in droves. In fact, I, I did a Google search and found tw over 2,500 blog entries and op-ed pieces uh, about that letter and the NCAA's response. Uh, I didn't read all 2,500 of them, but I read enough of them to know that they had two things in common. One is, is that the, almost all of them said uh, that the IRS should do something about this, that they should pull tax exemption from the NCAA or they should pull tax exemption from universities paying these high coaches salaries or something. Um, the other common thread of, uh, of all of these was that they were completely unencumbered by any knowledge of the actual law in, uh, in this area. And, and I, I, you know, I certainly understand that. When I was a, when I was a law student, in fact, one of my law professors uh, used to tell me that I, I was always more creative when I hadn't read any of the material for, the, uh, for class that day. Uh, but as somebody who writes and who has studied tax exemption issues for 20 years, it, it was a little annoying uh, to me. So, uh, so I decided to sit down and, and write uh, what we call in the law school world an article. I'm sure if, if those of you who have looked at it would say uh, this is not what I consider an article. This is a book or a monograph or something. Uh, but we call it an article. And uh, I, I set out to accomplish really two things. One was to provide a source to explain how the somewhat arcane and complicated rules of tax exemption and the unrelated business income tax applies to the NCAA and college athletics and to universities operating Division I athletic programs. And then I also uh, wanted to examine whether the tax laws might be an appropriate vehicle uh, to advance the college, uh, the college athletic reform agenda. It, it certainly has been suggested by some groups uh, that this would be a way to advance uh, some kinds of reforms in big-time college athletics, and, and I wasn't exactly sure about that, so I, I thought I'd take a look at that as well. So about the first two-thirds of this, uh, of this uh, overly long and complex article uh, discusses the current law. And what it finds is that under current law, the IRS is severely constricted in what it can do with respect to tax exemption or UBIT uh, with, uh, uh, on college athletics. Pulling tax exemption from the NCAA or universities involved in big time athletics would be virtually impossible under current law. Although I will say that if the NCAA uh, keeps issuing statements about how college athletics ought to be treated in a more business-like and commercial manner, uh, I might change my uh, view on that one. There is a commerciality doctrine that governs uh, uh, ch uh, charitable tax exemption. But right now, I think the answer to that is, uh, is that it's just not possible. 
it's somewhat more plausible that the Internal Revenue Service could apply the unrelated business income tax to Division I football or basketball revenues. But even that would be difficult legally. Uh, it's, it's certainly not a slam dunk to, uh, for the IRS to take that step. And even if they were successful on the legal argument, I, I don't think you get anything because mo I don't think there's going to be any profit to tax from these programs, uh, at least most of them, probably all of them, by the time you get through applying tax accounting principles, including depreciation and cost expense allocation and things like that. I don't think you're going to come up with any profit to tax. There would be a little disclosure because the, the universities would be required to, uh, to fill out Form 990T, which is the unrelated business income tax return form. But it's not the kind of disclosure that any of the reformers seem interested in. I mean, this is a tax form. You'd know your, you know your gross revenues and your gross expenses, and that's about it uh, from the Form 990-T. So in the last third of the paper, I then turn to tax policy. And, and the reason this is important to me, at least, is that if current if the current law regarding exemption in the UBIT is, uh, is dictated by tax theory, by the underlying rationale for why we have tax exemption, um, then, you know, my thought is we should just leave things alone. And the reformers who are suggesting that we use the tax laws to do something ought to go find a different way to, uh, to go do those things. But instead, what I concluded was that this isn't a tax policy issue. The tax policy uh, underlying tax exemption in the UBIT doesn't support exempting big-time college athletics from, uh, from, the ta from taxation. Uh, in fact, in some ways, uh, big-time college athletics are a poster child for why we have the unrelated business income tax. And once you get to that point, that means that the current tax treatment of uh, college athletics, the exemption and, and non-application of the unrelated business income tax, it's just a public policy question. It's, it's not a tax policy question. You, I, I view it now, and I think one should appropriately view it the same way that tax policy people view a lot of tax credits. So we have a tax credit for purchasing a hybrid automobile. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with tax policy. That's just a public policy way. It's just using the tax system to get people to buy hybrid automobiles. And, uh, and it's a public policy question. It's not a tax policy question. So once you come to that conclusion, then you can think about sort of tax exemption as a vehicle for Congress to approach some reforms in college athletics. There's no reason, once you decide it's not a tax policy question, it's just a public policy issue, there's no reason why you couldn't envision Congress attaching conditions to exemption that would address whatever issues we want to address in the context of, uh, of college athletics. So uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in college athletics. I'm a tax guy. And, uh, and so what the scope of those reforms would be and what the scope of those conditions might be is something for the experts in, uh, in, uh, in sports management and college athletics to, uh, to debate. But I did want to lay out three things that we do fairly routinely with respect to tax-exempt charitable organizations under 501c3 that one might consider in the context of, uh, of athletic, uh, of the finances particularly of college athletics. Um, and one of those, the first of those, uh, is expenditure requirements. Uh, we routinely in the tax exemption area 
require charities to spend their money in a certain way. So we have a rule that says that if you're a private foundation, you've got to distribute an amount of money equal to 5% of your net asset value every year for charitable activities. If you're a charity and you want to issue tax-exempt bonds, you have to use the proceeds of those bonds. 95% of the proceeds of those bonds have to be for charitable activities, and they can't benefit private organizations. So one of the arguments that you always hear about, uh, about big-time uh, football and basketball programs is we need these programs to provide the revenues to support non-revenue uh, athletic opportunities. Uh, which is fine, and I certainly don't have a problem with saying we're going to grant tax exemption to the football program and the basketball program in order to provide the revenues to support women's soccer or, uh, or lacrosse or whatever. But I'm a lawyer, and we have an old saying in the law, trust everybody but get it in writing. And I don't think there's any reason why Congress couldn't mandate that revenues from big-time college athletic programs have to be spent, a certain percentage of the revenues have to be spent to support non-revenue uh, athletic opportunities. If that's the public policy reason, right? If that's one of the public policy reasons that we're granting tax-favored status, then let's put it in the statute and let's give the Internal Revenue Service the ability to write regulations just so we know that it's happening. Now, you know, I'm, I'm certain that at some level it is happening. But I can also tell you that I'm absolutely certain that there's $32 million at the University of Kentucky that is not going to women's tennis. So, you know, let's make sure that we've got the rules in place and that we know what we're asking for these organizations and that they follow the rules. Okay, second thing, expenditure caps. We could cap coaches' salaries. We could cap uh, the amount of money that uh, the organization spends on athletic programs, or maybe we could do both. We routinely put limits on the way charities spend their money. We have a law that says that they can't spend uh, very much on legislative lobbying, an insubstantial amount uh, on, uh, on legislative lobbying. We have a rule that says they can't spend anything on political campaign activity. We have uh, excise tax rules applicable to private foundations that say that if you spend your money on certain kinds of, uh, of uh, transactions that you'll, get, you'll be subject to an excise tax. If you, uh, if, you have, uh, if you engage in jeopardizing investments, if you engage in certain kinds of, uh, of uh, self-dealing transactions, we have all sorts of rules regarding the expenditure of money. In fact, capping salaries in, uh, in the nonprofit world has something that's been seriously discussed at least since 2004 when it was floated by the Senate Finance Committee as part of their reforms uh, of the charitable sector. It was strenuously objected to by the charitable sector itself, I think for good reasons, actually, because they were, you know, the argument is, is that if we put hard caps on CEO or, or general management salaries, then you're subjecting the nonprofit sector to always get sort of second-rate talent uh, in the, uh, in the uh, management world. But I'm not sure those arguments apply to coaches' salaries. I mean, it, some, of the, some of this has already been discussed this morning. Uh, John talked about the, uh, the, the economic uh, 
uh, how silly it is economically to be paying some of these uh, salaries. Someone, uh, one of you asked this question, basically said, look, there's 190 coaches and they're not going anywhere. So if we cap the salaries, uh, I'm not sure that it's going to have that horrible an effect on the academic mission uh, of, a, of a university, which might not be the case if you capped president salaries or if you cap the salaries of the uh, of the uh, of the person who's running the medical center or something like that so again something to think about we do it we've done it there's precedent for it in the nonprofit sector there's no reason why we couldn't think about doing it here and finally disclosure um, it, two years ago the internal revenue service undertook a complete revision of form 990 which is the form that uh, tax-exempt charities have to file with the Internal Revenue Service to take it from what had been sort of a, a relatively bare-bones tax form to a full-blown disclosure form. And one of the things they did in that process was create a new schedule, we call it Schedule H, to uh, the 990 that was specifically designed to get disclosure from nonprofit hospitals. Prior to the Schedule H, it, Nonprofit hospitals had made a lot of arguments about why they deserve tax exemption and how they spent money to benefit their communities and uh, all sorts of things. There wasn't much hard data on uh, exactly what they were uh, spending their money on. There, wasn't, there, there weren't common definitions of what constituted a community benefit. Uh, so the Internal Revenue Service created this very detailed and complex reporting form for hospitals to it's, it's sort of what I call the spill your guts approach. I mean, you have to spill your guts about your community programs and what you're spending money on, and, uh, and the IRS defines the terms. They put in, they, they require uh, standardized accounting methods to apply so that you can get some comparable numbers. Uh, they ask about not just the financial stuff, but they ask about a lot of other, uh, uh, other arrangements that the hospital has, its joint venture arrangements. What, you know, they ask you to uh, attach copies of your charity care uh, 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 policies and so on and so forth. So again, one could imagine the Internal Revenue Service creating a new schedule, right? Schedule S, I think that letter is available, or maybe we ought to call it Schedule D1, um, for universities to essentially spill their guts when it comes to the operation of their athletic programs, that where the money's coming from, where is it going, who's getting paid what, uh, and also academic disclosure. If that's important, let's, you know, get it, let's get a disclosure of uh, the academic progress of student athletes and how that academic progress compares to the opera people and uh, whatever else we might want uh, in that circumstance. So uh, I'll close by, by emphasizing that my purpose in writing this paper wasn't to provide answers. Uh, I don't know what the answers are. Instead, it was to set up a framework for what I think will, could be a reasonable discussion of what kinds of regulation might be possible within the confines of the tax laws. It, it's not very helpful, I think, for reformers to ask the IRS to go do something that it probably legally cannot do, like pull tax exemption from the NCAA. Instead, I think that reformers probably need a more nuanced approach to using the tax laws as a reform vehicle. And I hope that at the end of the day, this article has provided a little bit of that nuanced approach. Thank you very much. Thank you. Very, very interesting presentation. So now you're about to discover why you should never have three presentations when two will do. <laughs> uh, 
And Andy knows that I actually know just a little bit enough about athletics to be dangerous, because I used to come bother him when he was at Pitt uh, in a friendly manner. Uh, and I have just a limited number of observations. My task today is to talk about how this sits with the rest of higher education. And that's like trying to describe a burnt out desert in some ways. Uh, I always, when I look at this, I always start with the following observation. I, I spend an inordinate amount of my time with university presidents, even some in this room. And what I know is that on this subject, you are both weary and wary. You're tired of being asked about it, and you're worried about if what you say is going to get you into more trouble, because it clearly isn't going to get you out of trouble. And so that you are sitting, if you're a president, in a terribly complex, compacted world, and this sore thumb keeps being shoved at you over and over and over again, and you don't have an answer. And sort of what you've heard all morning long is you don't have an answer. And that's important to know if you're going to talk about a reform movement. Now, I, I want to temper that just slightly with an observation that there is actually a group of presidents who love to talk about competitive athletics at the college level. And they are small liberal arts college presidents, because what they've discovered is that's how they're going to secure male enrollments. It's not an issue in female enrollments. The Title IX works and all of that. But, and, and that's very interesting because you've actually got in the middle of all the other things you're listening to, a return to yesterday where athletics really do play that kind of community building in the most literal sense. And, and the thing to keep in mind is why are those presidents interested in this subject? because it's core to their business. Their business is providing enrollments and providing learning experiences. And that if you were ever going to have a reform movement, you've got to get the first set of presidents less tired and less wary. And the second set of presidents have to sort of teach what it's like to go back to yesterday. So that's one observation. The second observation, I, 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 I'm a little surprised at my colleagues because we sort of rehearsed a little of this and they, they came out a little different than I thought they were going to. Uh, you know, but what I'm going to say and I thought they were going to say and I thought Tim Curry actually did say if you listen real carefully to Tim is this isn't going anywhere. This discussion for all of the pain of the money isn't going anywhere. Uh, I do, like John, I write things so I, I've written another book and I talk about this and the, the next to the last chapter of the book says, you know, if you're really going to talk about a reform agenda, the first thing you got to decide is what's not on the agenda. Number one is I tell people who are interested, don't talk about tenure. That's not going anywhere. It will wither, but don't fight it. And the second thing I talk about is athletics. And I really start with Derek Bach's book because Bach makes two important observations in his commercialization book. One is, we blew it on athletics, but we blew it a long time ago. The, these stories you're hearing, and the, the Kentucky salary and all that, that's just a culmination of 50 years, says Bach, of not knowing what we were doing and letting, the, letting it roam. And what he really says, and, and he says it more elegantly and nicer than I ever say things, but what he really says there is what's really missing is any sense of values. I don't mean to say that we're not personally honest and all of that, but 
his whole point is there's not a set of values to hold athletics accountable for. And since there isn't a set of values, it is the competitive pressure of the market that holds sway, and you get exactly the result that you have. And so I come to the conclusion there that there are lots of major reform agendas in America, but intercollegiate athletics is not going to be one of them. Now, that doesn't mean that, from my perspective, that intercollegiate athletics isn't going to change. So let me give you a scenario. Let me take a piece of John, actually. I think it is possible that we are living on the edge of what is now too often called a perfect storm, but this one may really be a perfect storm. If you read the polling data of American higher education right now, what you discover is something really troubling. Colleges and universities are no longer considered places of specialness. We have lost the aura of specialness. Uh, if I could have recorded Tim Curry, and I gather somebody is recording Tim Curry, uh, before is the number of times he said, well, we're just like the NFL. You know, it used to be we were supposed to be just like churches, not like the NFL. And, and that, that, that's a major change. And so people now are looking at universities and they're looking at them and saying, well, are they really different? Do they, are, do they really deserve to have special rules? Do they really deserve to have lifelong tenure? I don't have lifelong tenure. Why should they? Do they really deserve all these tax exemptions? I don't get these tax exemptions. Why should they? Feeding into this was the frenzy over the discovery that these mega endowments of probably 20 universities were not really endowments as, you know, charitable contribution, they were hedge funds. And if you actually watch what has happened to those mega endowments over the last nine months, just how much they really were hedge funds becomes clear. And this also tears that away from that sense of specialness that has been historically our protection. Then we talk about business, we talk about million dollar presidential salaries, all the things, interestingly, that you were hearing today as defenses why we can't control some coaches' salary, actually are things that tear at the fabric of being special for us. And, you know, whether it's going to change this time or not, I don't know. I'm tired of predicting change because I'm never right. So I now make qualified predictions. But look for a moment what could happen. Maybe the biggest thing on the horizon is we may be remarkably close to having a real discussion about a three-year baccalaureate standard degree in America. Three-year baccalaureate degree, from a family's point of view, would cut the cost of college by 25% overnight. It is standard in Europe. Uh, there are lots of educational reasons we can do it. People are literally begin to talking about it. Uh, and imagine what would happen to intercollegiate athletics if the three-year degree went through. Well, it wouldn't affect the troops on the field because they are interested in a three-year or two-year or one-year program anyway. But what it would do would even further cut the revenue of these institutions. These institutions would begin, all of them, they would begin all kinds of really radical experiments if this goes on. We'd do distance education differently. We'd do 
uh, competency-based testing of knowledge differently, all kinds of radical things would happen. And you better believe once the radical genie is out of the bottle, it would too come to intercollegiate athletics. And it could be fueled then by all the things that John talked about, because now people would look at his article and say, no, this isn't hit them over the head. Let's be smart. Let's really treat them for what they claim they are as a business enterprise and operate on them accordingly. Is that going to happen? Pro probably not. Could it happen? That's sort of interesting. But what it says to you as a commission, and I went back and read your ten, the report your predecessors made at the end of 10 years. You might sometimes go back and read the report your predecessors made at the end of 10 years. It is just a report that says, and this was a while ago, since we've been in business, things have gotten worse. And since you've been in business, things have gotten a lot worse. And it isn't that you have failed. I don't mean that in any way. This is an engine that is simply on its own track, and it will run itself out. And the reason that Andy is important here for lots of reasons, but what went wrong in the early 90s is just a harbinger of what would go wrong if you come at this topic in a university point of view head on. If athletics is going to change, it's going to change because the rest of higher education changes, not because higher education chooses to change athletics. That won't happen. For sure. Uh, let's throw the floor open to questions to uh, our, our, our three. Well, Bob, I mean, having been listening to you about as long as I've been reading Knight Commission reports, let me, uh, <laughs> let me say a couple of things. Uh, forget athletics and forget higher education. Reform in this country doesn't happen until it happens, inevitably in the face of collapse of the old paradigm. Inevitably, when people say that that which has been perfect forever is suddenly not seen as perfect. So you've described part of the condition for why reform is going to happen. But the other half is just even more fundamental than that. Society-wide, the approach for paying for most things has collapsed. And most of the assertions about the inevitability of the procedure growing ever larger have collapsed. And most of the rhetoric about the invention of a way to do things which reflects the market, which is what we said about our economy, have collapsed. And so as in the past, as now, this is the moment in which it is possible to effect collapse, I mean reform, precisely on the 7% a year increase in costs and on the right now diminishment university by university of what's being offered in the athletic programming which is minor league reform in the face of major league crisis in costing so i uh, i think in fact rather than having the commission sit there and put its finger in its ear and mouth and suck on it that it would be a nice time when we make our report to suggest uh, as in other days of reform that the moment has arisen and it may have taken 20 years which is how long this commission's been around but then again I can think of other reforms in this country that took longer than 20 years 
but which finally arrived because the moment arrived because of the sustained conversation about the need for that reform. And I would suggest this is one of them. I reminded Hotting at breakfast this morning that he started his term at the Knight Foundation by having listening, having to, having to listen to me. Only he reminded me of that. Yeah, right. and, and here he is again having to listen to me. Hotting, I, I think that you didn't listen to yourself on that one, if I could oh, I be did. so bold. I, I think what I was trying to say is, yes, it's a moment. But it's not a moment about athletics. It's a moment, as you put it, about reform. And if, if I was to be less, you know, sort of draw the curtain kind of thing and say to the commission, put yourself in the larger context. I think a narrow report that said, well, let's limit this or limit that without looking at the larger context, that a report that took the tools that John gives you or the notices that Andy gives you and says, fix those problems, that's the report I don't think is going anywhere. The larger problem report that says, look, this is part of a societal change, and this is, we have to link this to the other things that are happening in society. That's the one that could have some traction. And I think that's actually what you said. God knows what I said. But what, <laughs> what, I, would, what I would say to you is only this. If you have read our old reports, you understand they were always written in the context of what you thought a university's mission was supposed to be and whether what was happening in higher education's intercollegiate sports scene reflected those values. Those reports were received either uh, as jokes or as nice aspirational things which could be ignored because after all, the reality of the market, blah, 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 uh, just, just overrode that which was being recommended or some of the reforms were affected. I mean, way before we got there, after we got there, lots of reforms were affected, but at the end of day, over and over again, the repetitive theme was, you don't understand. You don't understand. This is not possible now. Well, I'm just saying, as you said, but it needs to be said expressly. It is possible now, just as a number of things which were very clear in the political agenda of the United States of America were not possible over the last 30 years are now being put into place because they have to be. Okay, um, other questions, comments? Yes, please, Andy. So I have uh, one quick question for, for Andy and two quick questions for John. Uh, Andy, you mentioned that back in uh, your work in, in 1990 that one of the changes that was made was to pull back in the scholarship area. And I'd like to hear your reflections on the feasibility of taking the 85 Division 1A football scholarships and reducing it to the 1AA level of, of 60. Uh, I remind you that in the NFL, the teams have active rosters of, of 45, and they have reserve and practice squads that uh, max, max out at eight. Um, and that as of two years ago, anyway, I'm not sure what the, uh, the current figure is. As of two years ago, the average Division 1A football team had 32 walk-ons in addition to the the 85 scholarships. So that's my, my question for you. And my questions for uh, John are un, under you, but my understanding is that there's a, I don't know if it's called a fragmentation or a severability provision that would, as applied to college sports, would enable the IRS to look at college sports not as a whole athletic 
program, but look at specific sports. I, I wonder whether that same fragmentation provision or principle would enable the IRS to uh, look at only, let's say, licensing income or signage income and separate that out. And if that were true, then there could be net income that would be taxable. And also, finally, uh, to clarify your point about tax preferences and public policy, I presume, given your analysis of the lack of profitability of particular programs in athletic departments, that you're not talking here about threatening an income tax, but you're talking rather about perhaps removing the exemption from bonding or exemptions for charitable donations. Are those the levers that you, you think would be hit? Okay, let's start with Andy. <laughs> uh, Andy, I think anything is possible in, in, the, in that area. And that, for example, uh, Ted, maybe you, you or, or others might know the, the 1AA rule. I'm not used to calling it by the initials, but 1AA is what I understand. Uh, I think it's 63 grants to X number, 80-some 80 some individuals. In other words, right. you can. It's not, it's not head count. Yeah, it's it's not head count. It's equivalency. It's, it's equivalency. And uh, personally, um, I, I, it might affect the game a little bit. It might affect turnover um, and and those kinds of things a little bit. Um, but I, in in uh, in my view, it's something that could be done and something that's the kind of thing that ought to be on the table. So, yeah, you, you're absolutely correct that we do have this fragmentation rule. Uh, I see no reason why the fragmentation rule couldn't be applied to, like, licensing revenues. Uh, however, the only, my only response is the, the Internal Revenue Service has actually gone down this road before, right? I mean, they, try, they thought about taxing TV revenues from the bowl games, and, you know, then there was a, an uproar and an out, outcry, and... You know, suddenly it was okay for the TV revenue was not subject to the UBIT. Uh, they they thought about withdrawing ta uh, the uh, uh, the deductibility of uh, contributions to the athletic program, which were really nothing more than payment for seat licenses. Uh, uh, and you know, and three senators from the South decided that was a horrible idea, and so now we've got a rule that says 80% of your uh, of your uh, donation is deductible, even though you know, there's a market for seats. We could, I, I could go out and, you know, get on StubHub and tell you exactly what, uh, what your seat preference is, uh, is worth uh, at, any particular, uh, at any particular university. So if I were Steve Miller, who's the commissioner of TEGE, soon to be stepping down and, and uh, he's going to take a new job, but right now, uh, I wouldn't do this. I mean, I just wouldn't do it without some indication from Congress that they're going to back me up because every time the IRS has gone down this road, Congress has come along with a sledgehammer and beat them over the head. And so, you know, you get tired of getting beat over the head by a sledgehammer. So I just wouldn't do it until I got some, you know, some uh, uh, movement from Congress in that direction. Uh, with respect to the, to the second question, now I, I am talking about tying these conditions to tax exemption. So universities, if you want to stay as a tax-exempt organization and enjoy income tax exemption, and, and uh, for most that would also be property tax exemption, because if you're not going to be considered a charity for federal income tax purposes, it's probably going to be pretty hard for you to be considered a charity for state property tax purposes. Um, 
you've got to abide by these rules. And if you, don't, if you don't want to abide by the rules, that's great. Then you don't have to be tax exempt. Uh, but if you want tax exemption, then you're going to have to abide by these rules. So that's, I literally am talking about tax exemption per se under 501c3, attaching conditions to the tax exemption and putting them in 501c3 and telling the Internal Revenue Service, go write regulations to, uh, to enforce it. Just parenthetically, foundations existed for about 60 years in this country without Congress telling them how much they had to distribute, and then Congress told them how much they had to distribute. Right. That was all and 1969. That was I, all part I, of the I know. And it was because program. of the stupidity of the foundations that it happened. Well, yeah, one could argue that it was, it was the stupidity of John D. Rockefeller in particular. <laughs> Anita, did you have a question? I think there's been tremendous change from the 1990 to, to now. Um, the student bodies are different from what they were. The people who are responsible for who are the presidents are different. Even the, the coaches are different. So I think there has been substan substantial change, and now would be the time to try to figure this stuff out. And because we do like these traditions, nowhere else in the world is there uh, alumni society associated with higher education. We're the only place, and it's our tradition, and of course, we're the only place that has the type of education and sports entanglement inter or inter whatever it is. Um, so I think that this really might be the time to begin what we need to do if we want to save it or if we want to just let it go down the tubes in terms because it'll eat itself out. Any thoughts? The. Um the change is taking place, and so what you're really saying, because of the change today, the people in those state legislatures 40 years from now will be different. And this is a whole, the, the whole kind of thing about lag and lead time. But, you know, we now know, for example, that the majority, not just a sizable number, but the majority of people who start college in one institution and get a degree are going to get the degree from some other, and that's not just the community college phenomenon. So there's a whole lot less institutional attachment in all of that. But it doesn't, to me at least, doesn't change the entertainment market part of this that has dominated this discussion. Uh, Karen Weaver's in the room. Karen Weaver's one of my graduate students. She's also an AD in the Penn State system. She's just done this wonderful dissertation on the Big Ten Network. And it's all in public. There's nothing private about what she did. And the, the number of zeros in that deal are enormous. And, uh, and, and it, it's so geared to take advantage of the new media that, that the, Curry was speaking about. I mean, it's all set up that way. This, as a business enterprise, intercollegiate athletics has proved remarkably resilient. More resilient, some would say, than the universities that host them. And that's part of the tension. But, but, but again, all of the, I, I, I'm not going to deny change. I think there's been enormous change. I would like to think this is a moment. But this, something big has to happen. And I don't think it is a, it's in intercollegiate athletic that's going to start, unless there's another big scandal. I mean, if we go back to the 1950s and, you know, that again. But short of that, I think the big fire, if you will, that's going to fuel what you have in mind and what Hotting has in mind is really going to be in the general public's reactions to universities. I think that actually is where the change you think is going to come. And I, ho and I hope you're right, actually. 
but it's going to be in the university side of the equation, and then it will spill over into the intercollegiate. But my argument is it won't it won't flow the other way. I don't see it flowing the other way. Bob, just on that uh, on that point, I mean, if you take the simple fact that, um, according to the data I've seen, the expenditures in intercollegiate athletics are growing at more than double the rate for the university as, as, as a whole. Is that a sustainable uh, phenomenon? I mean, is it going to be the revenue coming in the, in the world we're living in now? Is that going to be sustainable? And if it's not, doesn't that mean there's going to be reform? There's going to be change. So, But, Britt, the problem with the I, – I how could I disagree with that except for the following? This is a pyramid system. It's you at, Ohio, at the Ohio State when you were there, that this is maybe 40 institutions at the top of the pyramid who set the expectations all the way down, that create the pressure to have the sports, to create all of that feeling that intercollegiate athletics is famous for. And I don't see the 40 hitting the wall. That, that's the real problem. And so what's really going to happen is the 40 will, will, find, you know, will, will find the revenue, and below the 40, they're going to be in serious, serious difficulty. But what, what captures the public imagination is not this. It's the stuff at the top. And I, I, to be honest, I think that the stuff at the top isn't likely to undergo severe financial constraints, at least in the short run, five okay. years. Gerald, you had a question, I think. Well, it, it's directly related to what you were just saying there about uh, whether or not there would be at the university level enough uh, demand for change, and I, and I believe you were tying that into what are the possible implications of losing our specialness, which I see a, to be a major challenge for universities, and the invasion of legislatures and Congress and so on, uh, the tax law, everything else, is just hovering around it, ready to, to uh, bring about a very systemic change in the relationship of our culture to its universities. And a status that, it's, that tenure, like you said, tenure and everything else has come out of. And intercollegiate athletics, some of our excesses, it would seem to me, are part of this hovering around to remove our, our specialness and what it would take to do that. And uh, the, the economics that Hotting and a lot of others have mentioned, the economic situation, the, the uh, change that it generates, you would think would do it. But I, I uh, agree with you in the data that we saw here earlier and uh, that we'll be publishing later on about uh, the reports of university presidents would suggest that there is a group that uh, is not yet seriously touched by most of these issues. And so, and it is a leadership group, it will be resistant to change, and so it's going to be an interesting challenge to make the kind of systemic change that we would hope to make, but yet we kind of have to believe the conditions are such that we're going to, to have to. Uh, just because of these pressures from so many areas on universities to put us into the same sort of category that every other group 
uh, in our society. Even churches, I think, are getting to be pressured into losing some of their specialness uh, from the way society has treated them. You know, there's the old, I think it's spiritual, but if it isn't, I apologize. No more water, fire next time. This is, in a way, I, I, I try to stay away from making that kind of statement because th that's cataclysmic. But you've just pushed me or yourself a little bit forward to that, and that's where Hodding, I think, is. Is this a moment of, of fire? And if it is, then lots of things are going that, I, that don't seem possible now are going to become possible. But they're going to be very unpleasant. And, and, and that's the point that I try to make, that this isn't going yeah. to, if it's the fire that's going to change us, we aren't going to control the fire any more than we're going to control, in my view, a kind of rational ratcheting down of intercollegiate athletics. I, I just don't think it's in our control. And yeah, but, but in the absence, uh, well, in, the un in our inability to control the big things like the fire that would come metaphorically, that would come very irregularly un, at unusual times, not very often, then our responsibility in between those is, is to do the kinds of things that we're talking about and that we've done in our first two reports and hopefully we can do in a third one. Uh, but if, if in fact the universities are made to change dramatically because of the political and social structure, then athletics obviously would be a part of that. But in the meantime, I think we have to, given the system that we have, work to make it as, uh, as doable and defensible as possible. Well, I couldn't, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I had your, a, your points are very well made. Um, a question maybe that uh, John and, and Andy could respond to. You know, in, in professional athletics, as I understand it, there are salary caps that you know, teams are given a certain dollar figure and then you have to, uh, uh, there may be escape clauses, but uh, you, you live within a, a salary cap. Is it conceivable legally and practically, so legally John and practically Andy, that you could have um, salary caps for coaches? In other words, you could say in football, you could spend so much money on salaries. And then you decide how you want to spend. If you want to give it all to one coach, that's your business. But if you want to have assistant coaches, you got to stay within that salary cap. Is, is that would that be legally uh, possible under whatever tax uh, circumstance we have at present? And and Andy, do you think that's uh, that's a practical approach? Well, legally, you've got a problem with antitrust laws, and uh, unless Congress, even were, though it's collective, I mean, well, it, yeah. well the, the the salary caps that you have in in uh, in professional sports either are the result of a negotiated labor agreement, which takes it out of the antitrust problem, or it's baseball, which you know has an bizarro uh, uh, antitrust exemption. Uh, so you've got, the, uh, unless Congress were to mandate it, uh, either as part of the tax laws or as somebody suggested this morning, you, you get an exemption from the antitrust laws, I think you got a problem uh, legally. Now, I, I'm a tax guy, I'm not an antitrust expert, right. but, you know, but that's my take on it. But, but could you, under your uh, idea of using the exemption to drive public policy, 
Well, I think if Congress mandates a salary cap, you know, if, if, if Congress comes out with a law and says in order to retain your tax exemption, you can only play co pay coaches $250,000 yeah. a year, then, you then, could, then I don't think you've got an antitrust problem any longer because Cong Congress has mandated that as part of the underlying law. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would depend upon the number yeah. and how you would get to the number uh, and what you do with existing agreements. But in, if you look at, um, for example, the, uh, the bowl championship subdivision, there are, I don't know, nine or 10 or 11 conferences, and there, there are tiers of capability within that membership. You've got the BCS group, you've got the, uh, I'd say, Conference USA and the Mountain West in the next tier, and then you've got the Sun Belt and the MAC and the WAC that are lesser in terms of the total amount of money that they spend um, on these programs. Um, and in our business, uh, as, we, as we discover, sadly, often maximums quickly become minimums in about a nanosecond. So again, I say it depends upon what the number would be. To jump in a little bit with what Bob and others were, were talking about, um, I, I understand this is going to sound very, very altruistic, but I agree that the situation is, is uh, serious and, and something has to be done. And I think it's the responsibility of those that can afford what we're currently doing to lead the way to some sort of reduction. Um, otherwise, um, we're going to forget once again that the client in intercollegiate athletics is the student participant. That's what we're supposed to be thinking about. And that, those are the kinds of things that, that, that we ought to be worried about. And if we drive down the road where more and more and more, quote, non-revenue or Olympic sports are dropped, we are failing the client uh, very, very seriously. And the diversity that I talked about that I, that I treasure in, in what we do is, is going to be lost even further than it is now. So the Big Ten, for example, in the previous panel's uh, displays, uh, the slide showed that the Big Ten leads in sports sponsorship and, and uh, has the big budgets and the big stadiums and, the, and, and all of those kinds of things. I mean, you know, Ohio State is a unique place. 95,000 people came out to watch a practice in, in the spring game. I mean, you, you and I lived that. It's, yeah. it's a remarkable culture. Well, there's an opportunity to start to reduce um, the, uh, the, the, this nut down to something a little bit more manageable. And I think that's where it has to come from. Thanks. Sarah, did you have a question? Sort of segueing off of that, when you talk about change, when you talk about reform, um, and you just brought up the great point about who the client is, and I think change could come from student athletes, from either motivated by resentment for their sport being cut, when others, you know, when others, especially the high revenue sports, well, yes, they do fund other sports. I mean, I think we all have to realize that. But on the flip side, if a coach is making $6 million a year, how can I justify that to our athletes that we're bringing in for rowing or fencing or any of these other sort of broad-based sports programs that their sports are being cut? So I guess my question is, do you feel that the student athletes could have a voice in this? Could they play a role in this quote-unquote reform as opposed from it coming top-down? Could it come from the bottom up? I, I encourage student athletes to talk about it. Mm 
and and uh, that there are vehicles uh, uh, with the student athlete advisory boards for them to be uh, to be tackling these kinds of issues. But it's it's uh, I think uh, I think the first area to to attack is uh, is the personnel issue that we've that we've been talking about, both in terms of salaries and the numbers of of people. A a a, a, a university cut 21 positions from its athletics department, a very large athletics department, without dropping any sports. Mm -hmm. It was painful. It was excruciating for them to do that, but it can be done, mm -hmm. and and you know preserved the program for the students uh, there. By but 21 people were laid off, and that's that's tragic, but I, I don't think there's another way to uh, approach this. It's mm -hmm. it's clearly over 50 percent of these budgets are student athlete support and uh, in terms of financial aid and salaries. Analogously, uh, in the middle 80s, at the height of the golden era of television, they began firing report producers and drawing back from their coverage overseas, and they did it then for the next 10 to 15 years. At the same time, the salaries of the anchors were going for what seemed to be an obscene 500000 a year to $10 million a year to whatever. And I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal sometime around 87, which said, in effect, if the three anchors would just simply go back to taking a modest $1 million a year salary and give the rest of the money back into the coffers, they not only could hire every single reporter they had fired and every producer they had fired, they could open up 20 more overseas bureaus. The next time I saw Tom Brokaw, he walked up to me, put a penny in my hand, and said, is that enough, USOB? <laughs> what I mean, the point is here, frankly, totally analogous. I mean, if you just simply took that one factor and did a little redistributive thinking, you would begin to have a lot better chance to retain both the coaches you need and the small salaries on the sides and, uh, and uh, keep it going. But I'm glad you all have come back finally because it's where those – how many of you, Chuck, who was actually in the first commission? Yeah, you two. You two were in the first. In any case, when it came in the door was about the student-athlete. I mean, it's, it, it was came in the door trying to talk about the reassertion of what this thing was supposed to be all about. And if nobody has bothered to read the reading, and you all have, or to listen to what's being said, what is happening right now is slow motion disaster. But we are cutting back regularly now. Sports are being dropped regularly now. Whole sets of programs are under attack. Or they're being priced increasingly at a level which, frankly, makes it impossible for a lot of students, if you forget not all of them are rich boys, to even pay the student fees and pay the tickets to go see the games that are supposedly in their benefit. You have noticed what the tickets cost, have you not? If you think that's for students, I mean, you know, I mean, in any case, uh, th there needs to be that kind of rethinking in this area. And the fire only comes because in moments of calm, people don't do the right thing. And then the idiots do the bad thing, and they do it over and over again. It just seems to me this is one of those times that you might really want to say, hey, guys, we can still get a little ahead of the curve. I know it's a sore thumb, but it's better than losing your wrist. On that note, I think we're going to bring uh, this session to uh, an end. Let me uh, express our appreciation to our three panelists for a very, very excellent discussion.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission, visit www.knightcommission.org.